Would you invest in a company that had gone bankrupt multiple times in its history? If you answered no, then you would have missed out on one of my favorite dividend stocks of all time, PepsiCo. What's up everybody, Gen X Dividend Investor here. Today in my 22nd stock reveal video I'll be doing a deep analysis of Pepsi, my fourth largest dividend stock by portfolio value of the 25 I own. That means that after this I only have three stocks to go. And if you're somebody who likes this video or Pepsi, then slurp out that like button as a thank you to me for making this extensive and free deep analysis video. I'd like to invite you to join the Dividend Discord chat server that I've recently started. You get direct access to me as well as to around 600 other dividend investors and our numbers are growing all the time. Discord is a free chat service on the internet. You can access it either with your browser or with a smartphone app or you can download a thick client for your computer from www.discord.com. It's easiest to just click on the link in the description of this video or download the smartphone app and type in lowercase k, lowercase k, capital S, lowercase r, 5, capital F, capital Y into the invite field. We have all kinds of experienced investors in this new chat server, including multiple people who became millionaires through investing, and we have people who have never invested and are just interested to learn. We have all ages represented, from teenagers to people in their 50s. They come from around the world, including Cyprus, Kuwait, Romania, Finland, Bulgaria, Germany, Canada, England, Australia, and a bunch of others. We have a main chat area that is basically just normal BS, and then we have specific channels for dividend investments as well as non-dividend investments, such as if you want to talk about Tesla or Bitcoin or real estate or whatever. That way we keep the investing rooms focused on that and the general room for miscellaneous stuff. We also have areas to talk about movies and TV, politics, general news, sports, health and fitness, and others. Of course, none of the information should be taken as financial advice that you act on without doing your own research. Remember, don't listen to some random person on the internet without digging deeper. Also included in the description below is a link to the latest version of my portfolio represented in M1 for those of you that asked for that. And of course, don't just copy what's in my portfolio. If you'd like to sign up to M1 for a new brokerage account so you can start dividend investing using it, then please consider using my M1 referral link that I'll also include in the description below. M1 seems to run promotions that give you free stuff when you open a new non-retirement brokerage account using someone's referral link and you transfer some money into your new account. Like when I signed up I got a free $20. I don't know what promotion they're running when you click on the link, but I'm guessing it's something. Okay, I've had some folks send me their portfolios asking for my thoughts on them. So I thought that I could start up a new series where I review and or compare portfolios. I'll assume you want to remain anonymous unless you tell me you're fine being public. Maybe we will have people in the community vote on which portfolios they like if I do a comparison. So if you'd like to submit your portfolio for me to review, then I'll put in instructions in the description below on how you can contact me. Basically just email me or DM me or whatever details of your portfolio that you're fine sharing. It can be screenshots or videos or a simple email or a link to a spreadsheet that has your tickers and your percent allocation. Feel free to include more information if you're open to it, such as how many shares you have and when you bought it. Whatever works. At minimum, I need a ticker and what percentage of the portfolio that ticker represents. Maybe I'll keep an all-times best list of portfolios that you can see. Okay, now let's dive into my portfolio, followed by a deep analysis of PepsiCo, and then I'll show the dividend checks I've received since my Procter & Gamble video last week. Here we have a copy of my portfolio where we're listing 22 of the 25 companies. So that means we have three more to reveal after this. So let's start with the portfolio allocation pie. So right here we have the consumer staples food and beverages with Pepsi and Coke. And then here's industrials with 3M, Leggett & Platt and Caterpillar at 13.6%. And here's Utilities with Duke and Southern Company at 13%. Here we have Consumer Staples Household Goods with Procter & Gamble, Kimberly-Clark, and Colgate-Palmolive at 17.1% of the portfolio. This one is Real Estate with O, Realty Income, at 7.4% of the portfolio. This slice right here is Communication Services AT&T at 7.1% of the portfolio. And then we have Consumer Discretionary, which is McDonald's, Starbucks, Home Depot, and Disney at 11.7%. Here we have Energy with Chevron and ExxonMobil at 6.2%. And then Healthcare with AbbVie and Pfizer at 4.8%. This one is Financials with Goldman Sachs and Travelers at 3.8%.
Okay, so we see that I have 751.7 shares of Pepsi. It has gone up in the last 365 days, which is why this is green. Current PE is 15.61, forward PE is 22.8. It's currently about 8.1% of the portfolio. The annual dividend is $3.82. They tend to increase their dividend around the June time frame. They just paid out their dividend a few days ago, January 7th. Dividend yield 2.79%. The three-year dividend cadger is 9.1%. Five-year dividend cadger at 9.3%. And the 10-year dividend cadger is at 7.9%. I manually calculated the five-year dividend cadger at 10.32%. So the average weighted five-year dividend cadger for the portfolio is 7.19% and the portfolio's average weighted starting yield is 3.35%. I have $102,874 of Pepsi and it drips $2,872 a year. So that brings the portfolio up to 1.27 million and it drips $42,486. Payout ratio of 69%. It has 47 years of consecutively increasing their dividends, so they're only three years away from becoming a dividend king. So the portfolio's average weighted years of increasing dividends is at 38.07 years. And it is an aristocrat, and it has a low beta at 0.53. So the portfolio's average weighted beta is 0.59. Market cap on Pepsi is 191 billion, and the portfolio's average weighted market cap is 148 billion. Now for the folks who are asking why I didn't use Pepsi in my Coke video, well, now you know why. But of course you're right, you have to compare Coke to Pepsi. So now it's time for another deep analysis. PepsiCo is a 127-year-old, $190 billion market cap, $66 billion revenue, 267,000 employee food and beverage company. Their official name is PepsiCo, but I'll mostly just refer to them as Pepsi in this video. I love Pepsi. They have so many of my favorite brands, including Pepsi, Gatorade, which my son loves drinking during his sports games, Lay's Potato Chips, Ruffles, which is our family favorite brand of chips, Cheetos, which is my favorite sack food, Mountain Dew, which I used to drink when I was programming for long hours, Doritos, another family favorite, Tostitos, which we use when we make nachos, Lipton's Iced Tea, which my wife loves, Fritos, Aquafina, Tropicana Orange Juice and Naked Juice, which we always get at the grocery store, 7-Up, which my kids love, Quaker Oatmeal, which I've loved for decades, Life Cereal, which is our house favorite cereal, especially Vanilla Life, and some Starbucks bottled Frappuccino drinks, which I love, amongst others. Through their operations, authorized bottlers, contract manufacturers, and other third parties, they make, market, distribute, and sell a wide variety of convenient beverages, foods, and snacks, serving customers and consumers in more than 200 countries and territories. Their products are enjoyed by consumers more than 1 billion times a day. That's amazing. Now, they're organized into six business segments. Number one is Frito-Lay North America, which includes their branded food and snack businesses in the United States and Canada. Number two is Quaker Foods North America, which includes their cereal, rice, pasta, and other branded food businesses in the United States and Canada. Number three is North America Beverages, which includes their beverage businesses in the United States and Canada. Number four is Latin America, which includes all the beverage, food, and snack businesses in Latin America. Number five is Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, which includes all their beverage, food, and snack businesses in Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa. And number six is Asia, Middle East, and North Africa, which includes all their beverage, food, and snack businesses in Asia and the Middle East and North Africa. Let's see where Pepsi is from an industry and sector perspective. We see that they're in the consumer staple sector and in the beverages as well as the food products industries. Okay, let's check out who the largest institutional holders of Pepsi are. We see that Vanguard is number one with about 112 million shares worth about $15 billion, which is 8% of outstanding shares. Indra Nooyi, Pepsi's former CEO is the largest single shareholder of PepsiCo that I could find with 1.45 million shares worth almost $200 million. That means she could drip about $5.5 million a year. 
She's picking up the tab if we ever go out partying, I can tell you that much. So let's see where they are, including some of their competitors. We see that Coke is number one at 231 billion market cap. Pepsi is number two at 189 billion. Keurig Dr. Pepper is number three at 44 billion. And Monster is number four at 32 billion. Coke owns about 17% of Monster, so they're not really a competitor. Basically, Coke is their main competitor, and I love investing in duopolies. So for this analysis, I'm going to use Coke. Hopefully you watched my Coke video to gain more nuanced context about Coke than I'll present in this video. Coca-Cola, ticker KO, is a 133-year-old, $33 billion revenue, $272 billion market cap American beverages company that is sold in more than 200 countries and territories and employs around 63,000 people. They are the world's largest non-alcoholic beverage company. Unlike Pepsi, Coke focuses on beverages rather than food and beverages. Coke owns many amazing brands I love, including Diet Coke, Odwalla, Gold Peak Iced Tea, Seagram's, Fanta, and a whole bunch of others. Let's see how Pepsi and Coke are ranked in terms of most effectively managed companies in America per the Drucker Institute rankings. Here we see Pepsi is more effectively managed than Coke per their findings. Pepsi is ranked at 12 on the list between HP and MasterCard. Coke is ranked at 53 under Intuitive Surgical and above AbbVie, so still great. Please watch my Procter & Gamble video if you'd like to learn a bit more about the Drucker rankings. Let's check out how Pepsi and Coke compare on Fortune's various lists. So here on the Fortune 500 we see that Pepsi is ranked at 48 and Coke is at 100. Pepsi is below FedEx and above Archer Daniels Midland. Coke is underneath Progressive. So both are massive US companies. Let's see how they rank compared to all the companies in the world on the Fortune Global 500. So we see that both PepsiCo and Coca-Cola make the list of the 500 largest revenue companies in the world. PepsiCo is at number 154 on the list, below Daiichi Life Holdings, but above Archer Daniels Midland. Coke is at number 396 and is below CPC, but above L'Oreal. Please watch my Legged and Platt video if you want to hear some fascinating facts about the top 10 companies in the world. Let's see how they rank on Fortune's 500 Most Valuable Brands list. We find that Coke is a heavyweight here, ranking in the top 10 at number 6. Amazing. They are right underneath Facebook, which is number 5, but they are above Samsung at number 7. We see that Pepsi is doing great at the 29th most valuable brand in the world, underneath Honda at 28, but above Gucci at number 30. We live in a world where brand drives sales, so these spots are crucial for these companies. Let's see how they fare on Fortune's world's most admired companies list. Here we find Coke on top of Pepsi. Coke is ranked at number 16 in the world, underneath Salesforce at 15, and above American Express at 16. We see Pepsi ranked at 41 in the world, below IBM at 40, but above Visa at 42. Okay, let's jump into a brief history of Pepsi. Pepsi would not exist if not for a man I bet most of you have never heard of, until now. His name was Caleb Davis Bradham, and he was born in 1867 in North Carolina. He worked part-time as a pharmacy apprentice as he was attending college. When he graduated, he opened a drugstore he named after himself, Bradham's Drugstore. Drugstores were known for soda drinks at the time, so Caleb decided to create his own. He started mixing various ingredients until he stumbled upon a combination he loved. It was a mixture of sugar, water, nutmeg, caramel, vanilla, lemon oil, and a few other natural additives. He called his yummy invention Brad's Drink, and it was immediately a huge success. He then renamed his drink to Pepsi after the pepsin enzyme, even though no pepsin was in it, because he believed that his drink was a healthy cola that helped with digestion. In 1903, he moved the creation of Pepsi out of his drugstore and into a warehouse he rented so he could create larger batches of it. That year, he sold around 8,000 gallons of his Pepsi syrup. The next year he started selling it in bottles, and his sales increased to almost 20,000 gallons. He then decided to get a celebrity to endorse his soda, and he hired an automobile racer. Sales continued to grow. In 1908, Pepsi-Cola became one of the first companies to start delivering Pepsi with automobiles rather than with horse-drawn carts. They expanded rapidly across the country. But then World War I hit, and Caleb struggled to keep his company afloat. Because of the war, severe food rationing was going on, which caused sugar prices to spike. Caleb tried various sweetener substitutes like molasses, but it never tasted as good. Sugar prices went from 3 cents a pound to 28 cents a pound. But the demand for his drink was high, so Caleb made the mistake of buying a ton of sugar at these inflated prices. 
but to compensate for pricey sugar he had to raise his prices, and then he found it tough to sell. He could tell his business was failing, so he approached Coke to buy Pepsi, but they weren't interested. He went bankrupt in 1923. He sold off his assets to Craven Holding Corporation for about $30,000. Craven reorganized the company into the National Pepsi-Cola Company, but they failed to manage it properly, and once again they were on the cusp of going out of business. Craven approached Coke to see if they were interested in buying Pepsi out, but Coke wasn't, so Pepsi went bankrupt again in 1931. This time, Loft Candy Company bought them out, but then the stock market crashed in October of 1929, sending everyone into a panic. Over the next several years, consumer spending and investments dropped, causing steep declines in industrial output and employment as failing companies laid off workers, and this became the Great Depression. Loft Candy, and thus Pepsi, struggled. Again, Pepsi was pitched to Coke executives for what I believe was the third and final time in history, but they weren't interested. So the new owners of Pepsi changed the syrup recipe and then offered a 12-ounce version for the same price as the 6-ounce version used to be, and sales took off. By 1936, they became the second largest soda company in the world. In 1964, Pepsi acquired Mountain Dew. In 1965, they merged with Frito-Lay. In 1984, they hired Michael Jackson, who had just released Thriller and was one of the world's biggest stars. Pepsi grew so popular that Coke felt they needed to do something, and that's when they made the bad decision to change their signature formula and launch New Coke. But that didn't work out, and they had to reintroduce its classic version again. And Pepsi takes credit for causing Coke to jump through those costly hoops. Okay, let's look at some of the current business strategies. Pepsi has strategies around three themes, faster, stronger, and better. Becoming faster means broadening their product portfolio and packaging formats to win locally, fortifying their North American businesses by investing in Frito-Lay North America and North American beverages, and accelerating their international expansion with a disciplined focus on right-to-win markets. They'll become stronger by transforming their capabilities and culture. Becoming stronger means, number one, driving sales through holistic cost management to reinvest in the marketplace. Number two, developing and scaling the core capabilities necessary to better understand and meet new consumer needs, strengthen the brands, and improve customer service. Number three, building a differentiated organization, talent base, and culture. They are investing to make Pepsi stronger in five key areas. Number one, they're adding manufacturing and selling capacity to meet growing consumer demand. Number two, they're advancing the digitalization of their processes to become more efficient. Number three, they're increasing supply chain speed and flexibility to better serve their customers' evolving business models. Number four, they're focusing their sustainability agenda for greater impact. And number five, they're strengthening their brands to make their products more desirable for their customers. They will become better by number one, continuing to integrate their purpose agenda into their business strategy and doing even more for the planet and their people. They have a sustainability strategy which is enabling their success in the marketplace. Their sustainability strategy aims to build a more sustainable food system by intensifying their efforts on four critical initiatives. Number one, advancing farming practices to optimize crop yields, protect human rights, improve farmer livelihoods, and secure supply. Number two, replenishing more water than they use in water-stressed areas so they can assure business continuity while positively contributing in their communities. Number three, creating a circular economy for plastics that will fundamentally change the way the world interacts with their products. And number four, increasing the appeal of their portfolio by reducing added sugars, sodium, and saturated fats, and adding more positive ingredients. Under their new CEO, Ramon Laguerto's leadership, they're also adopting new leadership behaviors that are focused on driving high performance and enabling competitive advantage. These behaviors include to, number one, be consumer-centric, number two, act as owners, Number three, focus and get things done. Number four, voice opinions fearlessly. Number five, raise the bar on talent and diversity. Number six, celebrate success. And number seven, act with integrity. I can tell that listening to Ramon and evaluating the culture he's creating that PepsiCo is exactly the type of company I would love to work for. Okay, let's jump into their financials. There are four key financial areas I like to understand when I'm analyzing a business. And they are number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Number three, do they have too much debt? And number four, how's their profitability? Let's start with number one. Now there are six main things I like to review when answering the question, is a company growing? And they are number one, is revenue growing? Number two, are earnings growing? Number three, is equity growing? Number four, is cash flow growing? Number five, is the dividend growing? And number six, is the stock price growing? I also like to review how shares outstanding are trending. 
So let's start with number one of six. Let's look at revenue growth history for both Pepsi and Coke on Macrotrends.net, Guru Focus, Yahoo Finance, and Zacks. PepsiCo's revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 66 billion, a 2.1% increase year over year. Their 2020 estimates for 69.7 billion. Coca-Cola's revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 33.6 billion, a 0.7% increase year over year. Their 2020 estimate is for 38.4 billion. So we see that Pepsi sales trends look a lot nicer than Coke's which were on a declining slope from 2012 on until they started turning things around relatively recently. That being said, I explained why Coke's revenue dropped in my Coke video, and the summary is that they are going towards more profitable growth at the sacrifice of some revenue. They are updating their business model with a refranchising effort with their bottlers. This refranchising is seemingly a move to become more profitable at the cost of squeezed revenue. Bottling is a low-margin, capital-intensive business so instead Coke can focus on the concentrate, which is their higher margin core competency. Pepsi's gradual increases lately have come from pricing and volume increases. Let's dive into their revenue composition. So this is a slide from their 2018 10K. The fact that food makes up 54% of their revenue while beverages only makes up 46% might surprise people. That's actually one of the reasons I like Pepsi so much is their diversified revenue base. And I could see their snacks revenue increasing as states legalize certain products which are currently illegal. It's also great to see that 43% of their revenue comes internationally, thus another way I'm owning international markets while holding a U.S. company. Geographically, we see North America Beverages represents 33% of their revenue, followed by Frito-Lay North America at 25%, and then Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa at 18%, followed by Latin America at 11% of net revenues, and then Asia, Middle East, North Africa at 9%, and finally Quaker Foods North America at 4%. Okay, let's look at Pepsi's net income trending over time and compare that to Coke's. So number two of six are earnings growing. PepsiCo's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 12.4 billion, a 150% increase year over year. Their 2020 estimate is for 5.9 billion. Coca-Cola's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 7.7 .7 billion, a 176% increase year over year. Their 2020 estimates for $2.2 billion. Pepsi's profits have come from both net revenue growth combined with productivity savings. The lower tax rates have significantly helped both companies as well. Let's dig into their profits a bit. We see that Frito-Lay North America represents 43% of their profits, followed by North America Beverages at 20%, Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa at 12%, Asia, Middle East, North Africa at 10%, Latin America at 9%, and finally, Quaker Foods North America represents 5% of their operating profit. That being said, a quick check of their Q3 numbers looking back 36 weeks showed a negative trend in North America beverages, Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, and Middle East and North Africa. So something to watch. Okay, on to number three of six, is equity growing? PepsiCo shareholder equity for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 was 14.2 billion, a 37% increase year over year. Coca-Cola shareholder equity for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 was $20.7 billion, a 2.5% increase year-over-year. Year. So improvements recently, but overall not great trends. Okay, let's move on to number four of six, is cash flow growing? To answer the question, is a company growing? Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more nuances about cash flow. We see that Coke has a solid and increasing free cash flow year-over-year. Year. Pepsi has been decreasing slightly in the last years, something I don't like to see. They were at about $7 billion in 2017, $6.13 billion in 2018, and then their TTM is $6.08 billion. So something to pay attention to, though it's still a good amount of free cash flow. Okay, now let's move on to number 5 of 6, is the dividend growing. Pepsi has a history of delivering a lot of money back to shareholders, both through dividends and share repurchases. Their 2018 10K reported that they returned approximately $7 billion to shareholders. We see Pepsi on the upper left and Coke on the upper right. Both of them have exquisite dividend growth trend lines. We see that both of their share prices have increased in the last 365 days as denoted by their green spark lines. We see that Pepsi's PE is a nice 15.3 and Coke's PE is a high 30.9. Pepsi's forward PE is 22.8 compared to Coke's at 23.8. We see that Pepsi's dividend in Q1 of 2019 was $3.71 per share compared to Coke's at $1.60 per share. Note that Pepsi's dividend on the day of filming is $3.82 per share, 
but I use Q1 of 2019 for comparison's sake. Pepsi's three-year dividend cadre is an excellent 9.1% compared to Coke's okay 5.7%. Pepsi's five-year dividend cadre is a great 9.3% compared to Coke's mediocre 6.8%. Pepsi's 10-year dividend cadre is a good 7.9% compared to a similar one for Coke at 7.8%. But Pepsi's dividend yield is a weak 2.76% as of the time I did this as compared to Coke's uh, and also weak 2.88%. What we are seeing is that solid quality defensive dividend stocks like Pepsi have had a big run-up, resulting in a weak yield. Pepsi's 10-year estimated yield on costs is a mediocre 7.37% as compared to Coke's poor 4.96%. Pepsi's 20-year estimated yield on costs is a 12.6% as compared to Coke's at 12.9%. So both are just mediocre. One quirky thing that is useful to know is that Pepsi doesn't quite follow the normal path of paying out every three months. Instead, they pay twice in calendar Q1, and they don't pay out in calendar Q4. So they pay out in January, March, June, and September. Okay, let's look at what's going on with shares outstanding. PepsiCo shares outstanding for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 were 1.4 billion, a 1.3% decline year over year. Coca-Cola shares outstanding for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 were 4.3 billion, a 0.6% increase year over year. Companies typically issue more shares when they need to raise capital through equity financing, or for reasons such as acquisitions and mergers, or internal reasons like exercising employee stock options and such. So overall both have decent trends, with Pepsi's looking nicer due to their continual downtrend. Finally, number 6 of 6, is the stock price growing? To help us answer the question, is a company growing? Let's look at total returns of Pepsi compared to Coke, and the S&P 500 using Dividend Channel's Total Returns Drip Calculator. This models what would have happened if you invested $10,000 around 25 years ago. We see that your 10k would have turned into about 108k for Pepsi, an awesome 980% return. Your 10k would have turned into about 60k for Coke, a mediocre 497% return. And then your 10k in the S&P 500 would have turned into 88k, a nice 782% return. So Pepsi takes this one. Okay, let's move on to number two. Can the company cover what it owes in the next year? which is asking if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. It is important to compare ratios in the same industry due to fluctuations in what is normal. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter-term debt, whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its shorter-term debt. So the higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. I like to see ratios between 1.5 and 3%. So we see Pepsi's current ratio is at 0.95 compared to the industry median 1.37, which ranks them lower than 73% of the industry. Coke's current ratio is 0.92 compared to the industry median 1.37, which ranks them lower than 76% of the industry. So they are both a bit low, but not at points I'm concerned about. The number three next main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it is taking on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. Remember, debt to equity is total liabilities divided by total equity. If the ratio is greater than one, the majority of assets are financed through debt. If it's smaller than one, assets are primarily financed through equity. I like to see between one to 1.5. A high debt to equity ratio is often associated with high risk as it often means a business is pushing for fast growth with debt. The average debt to equity ratio among the S&P 500 is about 1.5. That being said, the appropriate debt to equity ratio varies depending on the industry because some industries use more debt financing than others. Capital intensive industries can have higher ratios such as utilities, transportation, energy, and telcos and such. Oftentimes financials have higher debt to equities because banks and such borrow money to lend money, which means they have higher levels of debt. A subscriber mentioned I should include some other reasons why you might see a high debt to equity. So sometimes it depends on the nature of the business. As I mentioned in my Duke and Southern Company videos, Utilities are basically monopolies in the regions they operate in, so they don't have to worry about being competed out of their market, so they can carry larger amounts of debt with less risk exposure than other types of businesses. Utilities bring in a stable and recurring income, and the demand for their services remains relatively constant regardless of economic conditions. This stability means they can run things closer to the edge relative to other business models, which, due to their economic volatility patterns, might not be comfortable to manage taking on the same percentage of debt relative to equity and such. So. Pepsi's debt to equity is 2.08 compared to the industry median 0.42, which ranks them lower than 93% of the industry. Coke's debt to equity is 1.5 compared to the industry median 0.42, which ranks them lower than 94% of the industry. So these management teams have honed their operations to run these levels given their business models, 
so I'm currently not concerned. Okay, let's see if we think they can cover their interest payments. So let's see if EBIT is at a reasonable level. PepsiCo's EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $10.02 billion, a 2.2% decline year over year. Coca-Cola's EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $9.3 billion, a 9.2% increase year over year. I normally like to see EBIT greater than or equal to three times net interest. Looking at their income statements, we see that both of them cover. Okay, the number four final main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is to understand their profitability. So let's look at return on equity or their earnings power. Normally I expect to see 10 to 15% to cover the cost of capital and make money for shareholders, but the more the better. So ROE tells us how much profit a company makes for every dollar it has in shareholder equity. ROE is the income that is being generated as a percentage of shareholders' equity, also known as book value. We see that Pepsi's ROE is 86.8% compared to the industry median 8.7%, ranking them higher than 99% of the industry. Coke's ROE is 38.9% compared to the industry median 8.7%, ranking them higher than 97% of the industry. So both of them look great here. Please watch my AbbVie video if you want a more detailed explanation of ROE, which goes into some of its nuances. Okay, let's look at return on assets. ROA is a measure of profitability. ROA will tell us how efficiently a company is squeezing profit from their assets. Return on assets is a measure of how well a company takes all of the money it has and uses that to make more money. It's a metric which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what I look for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. So here we see Pepsi's ROA at 16.2% versus the industry median 4.2%, ranking them higher than 91% of the industry. Coke's ROA is 8.9% compared to the industry median 4.2%, ranking them higher than 74% of the industry. So Pepsi's ROA looks awesome and Coke's is decent. I was talking to a sub and he brought up the usefulness of return on invested capital, or ROIC. So let's chat about that for a moment. ROIC is a profitability ratio that looks to measure the percentage return that investors in a company are earning from their invested capital. So it's the residual value of assets minus liabilities. Thus it is the amount of return a company makes above the average cost it pays for its debt and equity capital. ROIC can be used as a benchmark to calculate the value of other companies. So ROIC is net operating profit after taxes divided by invested capital. I like to see RICs over 2%, which means the company is generating value for investors. If it's less than 2%, it means it's destroying value, which, as it sounds, isn't what you want to see. Now, I couldn't find any ROIC graphs, so I created this one myself. Pepsi is blue and Coke is in red. Pepsi is generating a good ROIC. Beyond these six years of data points, it looks like Pepsi has earned over 10% ROIC in almost every year over the past two decades. And they are both above the 2% criteria, though Coke almost fell short in 2017. Another metric worth considering is the weighted average cost of capital. The WAC is commonly referred to as a firm's cost of capital. WAC measures the minimum return required by the company's capital providers, which are debt and equity. So WAC is used to determine the cost of each part of the company's capital structure based on the proportion of debt, equity, and preferred stock it has. Generally speaking, a company's assets are financed by either debt or equity. The WAC is the average of those sources of financing, each of which is weighted by its respective use. They call the difference between ROIC and WAC as the economic profit or excess return. WAC is used in DCF valuation. You can find WAC calculators on the interweb. So excess return equals ROIC minus WAC and total capital equals debt plus equity. And WAC equals equity divided by total capital times cost of equity plus debt divided by total capital times cost of debt times one minus the tax rate, where COD is the cost of debt and COE is the cost of capital. Pepsi's ROIC is above its weighted average cost of capital, which to me is an indicator that Pepsi's management are people I trust with allocating capital. Okay, the next profitability metric we will look at is net margin. I like the net profit margin because it's a decent metric in just a single figure to gauge how effectively management is running the business. Net profit margins vary depending on the type of industry you're in. Watch my previous videos for more details. Solid net profit margins can mean a stronger company that is able to survive challenging economic times. So Pepsi's net margin is 18.8% compared to the industry median 5.8%, ranking them higher than 93% of the industry. 
Koch's net margin is 23.1% compared to the industry median 5.8%, ranking them higher than 95% of the industry. So both are doing very well here, with Koch coming out slightly on top. Okay, let's look at one final profitability measure, which is earnings per share, or EPS. EPS is the company's profit divided by the number of common shares outstanding. EPS shows how much money a company makes for each share of its stock. A higher EPS often means that people will pay more for a company due to their higher profits. Sometimes people like to utilize diluted EPS rather than basic EPS in their analysis. So PepsiCo's EPS for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $8.74, a 150% increase year over year. Coca-Cola's EPS for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $1.80, 169% increase year over year. Okay, let's move from their financials to their community involvement, charitable giving, and to their environmental, social, and governance work. PepsiCo has a decades-long history of investing to make a difference in the communities they serve through their PepsiCo Foundation. In 2018, their foundation gave over $122 million to improve nutrition, water opportunities, waste management, and a variety of women's causes. Pepsi, under the leadership of their CEO, is focused on the most pressing sustainability challenges, risks, and opportunities. They've created an agenda for how they're going to tackle sustainability issues. They have a slew of goals they're measuring and reporting their progress against, including achieve 100% sustainability source potato, whole corn, oats, oranges, palm oil, and sugarcane, improve water use efficiency by 15% in their agricultural supply chain by 2025, replenish 100% of the water they consume in manufacturing operations, deliver safe water access to 25 million people by 2025, design 100% of packaging to be recyclable, compostable, or biodegradable by 2025, reduce 35% of virgin plastic content across their beverage portfolio by 2025, reduce absolute GHG emissions across PepsiCo's value chain by 20% by 2030, and internally, they have goals to achieve gender parity by 2025 in management roles, and they're embarking on a pay equity program. They also have a variety of goals to reduce the amount of sugars, sodium, and saturated fats in their products by 2025. Okay, let's move to their executive team. The average tenure of their senior leadership team is around 19 years, which is awesome. Let's look at their CEO. Ramon Laguarta has been the chairman and CEO of PepsiCo since October 2018, and has been with Pepsi for 23 years. During his time, he has successfully led a variety of aspects of the company, including shaping corporate strategy, overseeing global operations, and leading their public policy and government affairs functions. He is also a member of Visa's board of directors. Ramon is a native of Spain and got his MBA from the Assad Business School in Barcelona. Okay, one way we can assess the CEO is on how their stock has done since they have taken office. Here we see Pepsi in black, Spy in purple, and Coke in blue. We can see that Pepsi has significantly outperformed Coke and Spy in a relatively short time frame. So kudos to Mr. Laguata. We see that during this time frame, Coke has underperformed relative to the S&P 500. Okay, let's jump into concerns and risks. There are a variety of risks that I feel are important to be aware of. Understanding the risks to your investments is one of the most important things you must understand. A key part of the job you have with your portfolio is risk management. One potential risk is a relatively new megatrend that seems to be happening, which is that people are paying more attention to their health and there are more social pressures against sugary drinks. Thus, obesity and other health-related concerns may reduce demand for some of Pepsi's products. So Pepsi needs to continue to adapt with changing customer expectations to continue to maintain and grow their customer base. However, this trend isn't happening in less mature countries where some of their sales come from. Another risk they face is of currency headwinds, since a significant portion of their revenue isn't in the U.S. Weather conditions are another risk. Their drinks are somewhat seasonal, so significantly volatile weather could negatively impact them. Tied to commodities, it's possible that one or more ingredients that go into their drinks may have risks or issues tied to them that hurt them down the road. I'm not aware of any, but it's a potential risk I thought I'd mention. Various impacts to their supply chain could impact them. For example, increasing prices or decreased supply of key materials they need, such as packaging, aluminum, food ingredients, etc., could all harm them. Many of their raw ingredients, such as apples, oranges, milk, sugar, etc., are purchased in the open market. The prices they use for their ingredients are subject to fluctuation, and they manage this risk through the use of fixed-price contracts and purchase orders, pricing agreements, and derivative instruments, including swaps and futures, as well as through purchasing from multiple suppliers. In 2018, sales to Walmart, including Sam's Club, represented approximately 13% of their consolidated net revenue. 
Their top five retail customers represented approximately 33% of their 2018 net revenue in North America, with Walmart, including Sam's, representing approximately 19%. It's a lot of reliance on a few customers, which can be a risk. Changing energy costs could adversely impact their massive system. Under difficult economic conditions, consumers may seek to reduce discretionary spending on their products. Beverage quality and safety concerns may have an adverse effect on their business. Trade secrets are an important aspect of Pepsi, and their sparkling beverages and other beverages formula are amongst some of their most important IP and need to remain protected. Information technology system failures or interruptions or breaches of network security may impact their operations. Changes in tax laws and unanticipated tax liabilities could adversely affect the taxes they pay and their profitability. Increasing regulatory issues may adversely impact them. Litigation or legal proceedings could expose them to significant liabilities and damage their reputation. I recommend you look into it if you're so inclined. Of course, they have many competitors that are seeking to take their market share. So those are some of the risks I thought of, but dive into the details if you're so inclined to be more thorough. So let's talk about what some of my thoughts are on price. Please watch my 3M video if you're interested in learning more about how you can value a business and more details about how you can use discounted cash flow to estimate how much a stock or business is worth paying for. For brevity's sake, I'm just going to use a DCF calculator on Guru Focus, which is a quick way to estimate it rather than the better way of calculating it yourself. So let's see what it estimates for Pepsi and Coke. We see that Pepsi's DCF fair value is $93.75 versus Pepsi's stock price today of $136.11 which is a minus 45% margin of safety. Coke's DCF fair value is $18.94 versus their stock price of $56.06, which is a minus 196% margin of safety. So if you're just using these calculators, you'd say that Pepsi is a better price to value, but both are too pricey. And remember, you can go to the calculator and change the default assumption to see how their fair value is impacted. Okay, let's take a look at their PEs. Watch my previous videos to learn some nuance about PEs and what I expect to see in different industries. Pepsi's PE is 15.5 compared to the industry median of 20. Their Ford PE is 22.4. Coke's PE is 31.2 compared to an industry median 20 and a Ford PE of 24.3. So Coke is looking pricey, but Pepsi looks fairly valued. Please watch my AbbVie video if you want to learn more about the S&P 500 PE ratios. Now there's another metric which some feel is better than PEs to assess the value of a company, and it's called the free cash flow yield. If we take the free cash flow number and divide it by the value of the company, then we get a reliable indicator of the relative value of a company. You can use market cap or enterprise value to figure out the value of the company. Market cap makes it more like a PE ratio, whereas enterprise value is a way to compare companies across different industries and capital structures. I kind of like EV more because it includes the debt and value of preferred shares and minority interest minus cash and cash equivalents. So the formula is free cash flow yield equals free cash flow divided by EV. To make it more like PE, some invert the free cash flow yield, so EV to free cash flow. PEs can make you draw conclusions that may not be accurate if you look at them in isolation. Like you might see a low PE and you might think low growth. Or you might see a high PE and think it has a high growth potential, like Amazon or you might conclude it's just too richly priced. But when you factor in debt and look at free cash flow over EV, then what looks compelling can change. Anyway, it's something you might want to explore. Okay, another final metric I like to look at is how their dividend yield has trended over time as an input into my buying decisions. Here are the last five years of dividend yield trends for Pepsi and Coke. Pepsi's dividend yield is 2.82% compared to the industry median 2.34%, ranking them higher than 60% of the industry. Coke's dividend yield is 2.88% compared to the industry median 2.34%, ranking them higher than 62% of the industry. Both dividend yields are lower than I normally like to see, which is low threes. Coke has been slowly trending down, which means it has been getting pricier relative to its value. Pepsi has kind of been going sideways, which makes me more open to them for investing. Remember, yield is their annual dividend that they pay out, divided by share price. So if this line is flat, then it's one indicator that its relative value has stayed flat when looking at this metric in isolation. If the line trends downhill, then it probably indicates that it's getting pricier, and if it trends up, then it indicates that it's potentially becoming more of a value play worth considering. It will have a tendency to trend up if they increase their annual dividend payout or if the share prices are going down. It will trend down if the share prices go up relative to the dividend payout. So the ideal is to buy the yield when it's high and then see the line trend down because the share price is going up after you buy it. Of course, if the share price goes down, then your drip can buy more shares. 
let's look at what analysts at MarketBeat said about Pepsi and Coke. So for Pepsi, we see the consensus rating as a hold compared to a consensus six months ago of a hold. Price today is $134.53, and the consensus price target today is $135.17, which is a 0.47% upside. Coke's consensus rating today is a buy. Their consensus six months ago was a hold. Price today is $55.53, and their consensus price target today is $57.33, so a 3.25% upside. So we see that the professionals believe that there is marginal upside for Pepsi, though they still maintain a hold rating. For Coke, though, we see that they've become more bullish and have switched from a hold to a buy, seeing a 3.25% upside. Now let's look at insider trading. We see a variety of transactions by their officers and directors. Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about how to read a Form 4 dealing with insider trading. Nothing jumps out as disconcerting or material to me, but I'm not looking over broad timeframes, which if you are concerned or interested in, you should do. Okay, so what about me? When did I buy Pepsi and what price would I want to see before I might be compelled to add more to my position? As always, don't take this as financial advice. Pepsi was a company I used to own. Then I got out of it for a reason I'll go into in a future video, and then I got back into it again in early January of 2019 at $108. Today's price of $134 is a bit high. That being said, I personally wouldn't feel terrible adding more at these levels, especially since I'm in this for generations to come. I love Pepsi. It's one of my favorite companies of all time. Would I like it under $100? Yeah, I think that'd be incredible. But at this point, I'm just letting my drip do its magic. So what do you think? Are you a bull or a bear on Pepsi? Are you going to buy, sell, hold, or keep looking? Now let's look at the Leggett and Platt dividend checks I just received. This week I received two dividend checks from Legg. I hold Legg in my tax-sheltered IRA and in my taxable brokerage. As you can see, I got two dividends from Leg worth a total of $373.64. Since I've turned on my drips for Leg in both accounts, altogether it bought another 7.38 shares of itself, taking me from about 934 shares to 941 shares. So this quarterly dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $11.81 a year. Assuming they don't increase their dividend, that would mean that just by holding leg in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by $47.23 a year. But it will be higher than that since it compounds quarterly and because I believe they'll increase it. Next is Disney, which I hold in my tax-sheltered IRA. As you can see, I got a dividend check from Disney for $100.94. Remember that Disney has an unorthodox cadence of paying dividends at every six months rather than the more normal three months. Since I've turned on my drip for Disney, it bought in another 0.7 shares of itself, taking me from 114.7 shares to 115.4 shares. So this dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $1.23 a year. Assuming they don't increase their dividend, then this would mean that just by holding Disney in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by $2.46 a year. But it should be higher than that since it compounds every six months and because I believe they'll increase it. And this just in, Realty Income announced that they increased their dividend to 0.2325 per share from 0.2275 per share, payable February 14, 2020, to shareholders of record as of February 3, 2020. This is actually the 105th dividend increase since Realty Income's listing on the New York Stock Exchange in 1994. The ex-dividend date for February's dividend is January 31st, 2020. The new monthly dividend represents an annualized dividend amount of $2.79 per share as compared to the current annualized dividend of $2.73 per share. That means my realty income passive income just increased from $3,412 per year to $3,487 per year, which is a $75 per year increase. I also got two dividend checks from O in my tax-sheltered accounts. I don't like holding O in a taxable account because of the tax implication hassle. So those two checks totaled up to $284.34. Since I've turned on my drips for O in both accounts, altogether it bought another 3.8 shares of itself, taking me from about 1,249.8 shares to 1,253.6 shares. So this dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $10.37 per year. 
Assuming they don't increase their dividend, then that would mean just by holding O in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by $124.44 a year. But it'll be higher than that since it compounds monthly and because I believe they will increase it. Finally, last week I received two dividend checks from Pepsi. I hold Pepsi in my tax-sheltered IRA and in my taxable brokerage. As you can see, the total amount is for $702.44. Since I've turned on my drips for Pepsi in both accounts, altogether it bought another 5.2 shares of itself, taking me from about 746.5 shares to 751.7 shares. So this quarterly dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $19.86 a year. Assuming they don't increase their dividend, then this would mean that just by holding Pepsi in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by $79.46 a year. But it should be higher than that since it compounds quarterly and because I believe they will increase it. So just this quarter, from all the companies I just mentioned, my overall annual estimated passive income just got increased by about $328.59 a year. And that's why you want to invest in quality and stay invested. A simple week's worth of dividend checks and increases just increased my annual income by about $331 a year. Okay, let's see how this looks in the spreadsheet. So here we are in a copy of my spreadsheet where I'm looking at my monthly dividends for January of 2020. And we see that these are the ones I kind of just went over and I had Kimberly Clark in the previous week. So total dividends received in January so far for the stocks I've revealed is $2,019.23. And then if we look at a copy of another view of it, this is kind of a quarterly view where I show January, February, March, and we've added those dividends in for January here. So we have Pepsi and Kimberly Clark and Realty Income, uh, Leggett Platt and Disney. All right. Finally, if you learned anything or enjoyed this video, then please don't forget to hit the thumbs up button and leave a comment, including your partner number, as a simple way to thank me for making this free deep analysis video of PepsiCo. Adding your partner number to the comment helps me be able to do shoutouts and visual acknowledgements of my subscribers who've watched and commented on most of my videos. With this Pepsi video, I'm hashtag partner29 because I've watched all my videos from start to end as well as left a comment. Thanks, and I'll see you in my next video. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video, and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons, share this video with others, and comment below.